This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Father in heaven, here we are in peace and comfort and security. But there's a storm that's gathering. We know that you're going to take us through the storm, but we need to be ready to know that it's coming so that we don't lose heart and we know that you're still in control. Teach us, Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. And when we don't see support beneath our feet, help us to realize that you're holding us up. We earnestly desire the gift of your Spirit so that we can truly be your servants and as such, we can receive your seal. We know that we've received your seal as believing Christians, but we want a special measure of that spirit, giving us a special measure of closeness to you and loyalty that we've never had before, total dependence upon you, humility, emptying of self, trusting in Jesus, and following his example right through to the end. We know that we're going to go through a valley of dark shadows, but there's a banqueting table on the other side. Not just for us, but for many others. We want them to be there too and enjoy that. And above all, we want to see your face and enjoy your presence, bask in the warmth of your sunlight for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, how to receive the final seal of God's salvation. We talked um, yesterday about the seal of God, but we're going to get more into the end time context. Um, there's quite a lot to cover, so I'm going to go quite fast for a bit, and then we'll try to take some time for discussion to let you react to it. Okay. Uh, first of all, the question is, how can I be sealed by the Holy Spirit? That's what we want. And let's go to... Ephesians 1, 13-14, I mentioned this yesterday, so I won't dwell on it, but all Christians are sealed by the Spirit if they have truly been converted and received the Lord Jesus. See this, in Him, that is in Christ, you also trusted. Having believed, you were sealed. So to trust and believe, that's really the same thing, isn't it? To have faith in Jesus, and if you have faith in Jesus, you trust and believe, then you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay? Do we believe that? So we have the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of coming here to GYC to find the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit finds us. In fact, in Numbers 11, when the 70 elders received some of the Spirit that was on Moses in order to assist him in his work, the command went from Moses to come to the sanctuary. All 70 elders were supposed to come to the sanctuary and there, 68 of them <laughs> received the Spirit. But two of them stayed away. They were back home. Now, I had thought maybe they were um, perhaps rebellious or something like that. But apparently, they felt unworthy to receive the Spirit and to participate in the leadership of Israel with Moses. So they stayed back at their tents, back in the encampment, and they didn't come to the sanctuary. They're, we know their names even. Eldad and Medad. I like those names, huh? So two daddies in Israel. They stayed back home. And 
you know what? The, the Holy Spirit found them where they were. Okay? So if you're thinking, well, I'm limited. I have to go to a certain place. I've got to go to GYC. I've got to go here or Pioneer Memorial Church or, or someplace. I've got to go to receive the Spirit there. No. The Holy Spirit can go anywhere and will find you where you are. And I love the response of uh, Moses when Joshua came rushing up to him and he said, Oh, Moses, it's terrible. You've got to put a stop to this. Those guys are prophesying out there in the camp. That's not following protocol. They were supposed to come to the sanctuary. They're not supposed to be prophesying out there. And Moses says, Don't worry, Joshua. I just wish that everybody in Israel had the Spirit so they could prophesy. Now, you see, there is, there is a true leader. He's not a manager, just in the sense of, of saying, oh, wait a minute, we have to follow things exactly in this little box. And if things are a little bit out of control, then that's dangerous and it's not following my authority. No. He lets this, if the Spirit is in charge, everything is okay. So if the Spirit gets us doing some rather unexpected things, okay, then the rest of the, of the folks shouldn't really worry about that if it's really the Spirit, if it's the true Spirit. Now, we know that there are false spirits. We have to test the spirits according to the Word. But sometimes the Spirit moves us out of our comfort zone. In fact, that is the precise genius of the Spirit, that the Spirit impels us with love that's poured into our hearts so that we do move out of our comfort zone. Because it's our comfort zone, folks, that is keeping the work from getting done, right? It was only when the disciples stepped out of their comfort zone they leapt out, actually. They were pulled out and dragged out by the Holy Spirit. That they were doing things that uh, were unheard of. And as a result, uh, the work really went forward. So that every creature under heaven, according to Paul, heard the gospel in that generation. That's what we want to happen. Okay. Now, there's a special end time sealing. We read this yesterday. The angel is coming from the east, having a seal of the living God. Seal of the living God. Other gods have ownership, and there are seals and marks. In fact, in um, Revelation chapter 13, there's another kind of mark of another God who's not a living God. It's the mark of the beast, right? That people worship. And that is not the seal of the living God. This is very significant. See, the living God means all other gods are not really true living gods, are they? He's not only the living God, he's the God who provided life. In fact, his, his personal name, the personal name of God is... Well, Jehovah is the way it's badly transliterated. Um, probably closer to Yahweh. We don't exactly know how to pronounce it. But uh, we, we know from looking at the form, Yahweh, it looks like a hithiel, that is causative form from the verb to be, meaning the one who causes to be. What does that mean? The creator. Not only the living God, but the God who gives life. And that's why it's so significant. In the first angel's message in Revelation 14, 6, and 7, worship him who made, who made, see the creator, heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. All right, so the seal of the living God comes. Don't harm the earth, the sea, or the trees. So keep back angels, you four angels, at the four winds of heaven. Keep back those four winds so that we don't have this destruction in this time of trouble until we have a chance to seal these people. It's important that the sealing happen before that terrible time. Why? Because once everything busts loose, then it's going to be very difficult to do the gospel work 
In fact, um, the time of trouble is after Michael stands up, right? In Daniel 12, uh, Michael stands up is the close of probation. So we want the servants of God to be sealed. And meanwhile, the angels are standing at the four winds, which are the four directions, north, south, east, and west. And they're just, well, you can see them straining. Those angels are sweating these days, aren't they? Huh? Yeah, if angels could sweat. Ooh, well, because you've got all these forces on earth just trying to go to wipe everyone out so that Satan can have the victory and he can sweep up this huge harvest and take it with him to hell, right? We know what hell is. It's not a place. It's, well, it's really is, is, is an event. It's the whole surface of planet earth. So he wants to wipe everyone out, but God wants to save whom he can. And this sealing is part of that process. And we mentioned yesterday that the 144,000, that means a perfect, symmetrical, holy war army that is commissioned to do God's work. Okay? And here it's not for killing, it's for saving life. How to be sealed then? Now, notice what I marked in blue. Look at that. How can I be sealed? Trust, believe, servants of our God. So how can you be sealed? Trust and believe in Jesus. Right? And be a servant of God. That's how to be sealed. You're to be a servant of God. Now, as a servant of God... That means that at any given point in history, you follow his directions and you follow his commands. That's what servants do. They follow their, uh, their master's commands, right? So, the commands can be different at different times in history, can't they? God said to Moses uh, that his people could go into the promised land. Before that, God had said to Abraham in Genesis 12, Lech Lecha. That was clear, wasn't it? Lech Lecha. That's Hebrew. Get going. Get going. To a land that I will show you. So he got going. He was a servant of God. Later on, Caleb and Joshua. God had told them that they could go into the promised land. They followed God's directions, his command. They believed and trusted. See? Those things are crucial. You've got to trust and believe in him in order to follow him and obey him and be his servant. You can't have one without the other. And so they trusted and obeyed and they went in to the promised land. That's exactly what we want to do. And we'll get to that a little bit more later. So that's how to be sealed. It's not some complicated thing. It's not some religious hocus-pocus or theological mumble-jumble. How to be sealed, trust, believe in Jesus, let him carry you through all the way, and you will be a servant of God, accepting where he goes. Now, you see, a lot of people worry about perfection. That we need to, we're going to get to that a little bit later. How do we, how do we uh, gain perfection? And there's a whole theology of the final generation that says that you need to be perfect in your works and not sinning anymore before Jesus comes. Okay? So we're going to get to that, but I'll just mention here at this point that the, the issue is if you trust and believe in Jesus, he will do for you and in you what needs to happen. Amen. He will do it. Okay? So you don't have to worry about doing it yourself. It's he's the one who does it. I remember when I first started to teach um, at Pacific Union College, I mentioned yesterday that um, I received that job by, uh, by phone on my birthday. <laughs> After waiting, uh, not knowing where I was going to end up, I'd finished a PhD. I graduated from University of California at Berkeley with a PhD in uh, Hebrew Bible. And I got up to within two and a half weeks before the school year started and I didn't have a job. 
I was just doing construction and uh, landscape maintenance and even telemarketing. Wow, that's a tough job. Um, just to make a living so I could keep on supporting my, well, I had a wife and a baby daughter, six, year, six months old. And I got up to within two and a half weeks of the school year at PUC, and I got a phone call. I'd been applying for jobs in all kinds of places. The last place I wanted to work uh, was in the Adventist system for various reasons. I'd had some, I had some rough experiences. And so, but I think the Lord had a sense of humor, and he looked down from heaven above, and he was chuckling away up there, and he, he has this call come to me on my birthday. Talk about exquisite timing. And I'm ready. I'm ready for a job at that point. So I get this job over the phone, and then I start teaching 18 to 20-year-olds at Pacific Union College. And it was a job really in New Testament, because I was replacing a New Testament guy. They wanted me to teach Greek, and I just finished a doctorate in Hebrew. But I studied Greek as well. What I, I didn't tell them my dirty little secret was I, I, was, I did my Greek study when I was about 15, 16. <laughs> when I, my dad was a Greek teacher back at Union College. And so when I started teaching Greek, I was using notes that I did when I was 15. But anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but I was teaching life and teachings of Jesus. And these were students. I discovered this is frontline evangelism. I didn't realize that. Teaching at an Adventist college. But these were students from not only Adventist backgrounds, solid Adventists, but also very Laodicean and loose and nominal Adventists. And also a lot of not only non-Adventists, there's some non-Adventist Christians or non-Christians from America, but also um, non-Christians from all around the Pacific Rim, um, Buddhists especially. Okay, so I'm teaching life and te teachings of Jesus to this wide spectrum of people, and I just finished a doctorate in Hebrew, and I'm teaching New Testament, and I'm standing at the door. This happened about every class period. I'd be standing at the door, outside before just going into the classroom to face all these students, and I would say, Lord, I don't know what needs to happen here, but whatever it is, you make it happen. I, I need it. I realized my total dependence. I wasn't trusting on my PhD or all kinds of things. I just needed him, and he made it happen. He really did. Yeah, he made it happen. It was a, it was a miracle. Okay, so if we trust in him, he's going to carry us through. Now, God's faithful ones are protected if they have the seal of God by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're moving ahead a bit here. Then the fifth angel sounded a trumpet. This is the fifth trumpet in Revelation. I'm not going to get into an exegesis of the trumpets because, frankly, um, I'm an Old Testament scholar and I haven't really gotten into this that much. But there's one point I want to show you that's very important. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. He opened the bottomless pit. Smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. To them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. It sounds pretty bad, right? Um, and... Um, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So what's the seal doing? It's protecting the people of God, right? What, what is happening is this trumpet is, is referring to an event, and I'm not going to get into whether it's historical or in the future or both or all of that, but the point is it's obviously a judgment from God. And these trumpets, seven of them, we're proclaiming the end of the world as we know it. Because right at the end, you've got the second coming of Christ. And it kind of reminds you of the trumpets outside Jericho, right? Seven times around, and then they shout seven times and blow the trumpet seven times, right? And then what happens? The wall falls down flat. So it's like the earth 
is Jericho, and these trumpets are getting close to the demolition of planet Earth and the end of civilization as we know it. Um, as we know it. I'm sure looking forward to a better civilization. Kind of reminds me of something that, um, something that somebody said to uh, Mahatma Gandhi, whom I greatly admire. They said to Mahatma Gandhi, um, what, do you th- what do you think of Western civilization? And Gandhi replied, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so it's protection. Now let's go to Ezekiel. And here in Ezekiel 9, we find a, a terrifying scenario. This is really frightening. What was happening was, Ezekiel had had um, a vision. He was taken from where he was in Babylonia, because he was one of the captives, you remember? And he was taken in vision and transported, kind of like levitated, over to, um, to Jerusalem, and he saw the abominations that were going on there at the temple. And there were people worshipping the sun with their backs to the temple. There were elders and so on inside, leaders. They were supposed to be the leaders of the nation. And they were inside the temple there, worshipping all of these, these different kinds of creatures. Have you ever wondered what that was about, all these, these animals and, and things? My wife is doing her PhD dissertation at the University of California, Berkeley, on the topic of composite creatures in ancient Babylonian art. Okay? And these composite creatures are like those creatures that these guys were looking at. And um, what do they represent? They're like in, like in uh, Daniel 7. It's beasts made of combinations of one kind of animal and another kind of an animal or a person and an animal, you know, people with bull's heads and, and lions with wings and all this kind of stuff. What my wife has found is that those creatures represented in that ancient religion demons or gods, generally demons. Okay? So these guys are involved in essentially occult worship. You know what occult is? Witchcraft and all of that kind of stuff, and spiritism. And in fact, we know from Deuteronomy 32 and from 1 Corinthians 10 that pagan worship is really the worship of demons. When the, when the, uh, explicitly so in 1, 1 Corinthians 10. The, the sacrifices to pagan gods are sacrifices to demons. The pagan gods are demons. Right? And I've heard that in India there are three million gods and every one of them is a demon. And my wife used to live there, and, and also in Nepal, and she's witnessed what that's all about. So this is a, a very uh, scary thing, to mess around with pagan religion. And there are a lot of neo-pagans in this country. Things are becoming more and more pagan. Now, it's true that other people have the god of uh, money, or the god of this, or the god of that, but some people are actually resurrecting these occult characters. And when my wife has gone online sometimes to look up the names of some of these demons... She goes to a website. She just wants some um, scholarly information about the ancient demon. And what she pulls up is some modern occult site through this Google search that these people are actually involved in interacting with these. And that really freaks her out. So just to let you know what's going on. uh, There are some of the same forces and so-called intelligences around that have been around for a very long time. Okay. So, in any case, that's what they were doing. And then there were women who were weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was the... Uh, Dumuzi is the Sumerian name, and Tammuz was a later uh, Babylonian name. And he was a, a god who was supposed to, according to the myth, uh, die and then rise again 
to emulate the cycle of nature. It's essentially nature worship. And Ellen White talks about the results of nature worship in Prophets and Kings in connection with the story of Elijah. Nature worship is very degrading and debasing because human beings uh, want to lower themselves. Instead of being made in the image of God, they want to lower themselves to become uh, like creatures or worshiping creatures, which puts them lower than the creatures. And then they lose accountability and everything is just do what comes naturally and Satan takes charge. It's a nasty thing. And that's what's happening a lot in America today and in the world. Okay, so here you have all that stuff. And suddenly six men come from the direction of the upper gate that faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man from among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. So he's a scribe. He's a scribe. In the ancient Near East, you find some gods are represented as scribes. For example, the god Nabu, the son of um, Marduk, the city god of Babylon, was a scribe god. Also in the um, New Year festival of a, a certain uh, goddess, Nanshe, in the ancient Near East, very early, she had a scribe god who would record uh, the, the verdicts and the deeds and the judgments and so on of the people that were under her care. Okay, so it's quite similar. You have judgment going on. And here you have a supernatural being, but it's an angel. It's not, a, not, a, not another god. And this angel is going to be keeping track, keeping track in this case of who is going to be killed uh, in divine judgment. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. That's at the temple. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. See, what's going on here in, the, in these chapters of Ezekiel is that the presence of God is departing from his house. It's like Jesus later said when he left the temple for the last time. He says, your house is left unto you desolate. Remember what he said earlier? My father's house, my father's house, shall be called a house of prayer. So he identified with it. It's my father's house, my house, right? But now it's your house. It's no longer my house. Shall be left unto you desolate. And what happens when the God, the deity, no longer resides among his people? Those people are left without protection. The next thing is destruction upon that temple and upon the people. And that's what's coming here. Okay, so the glory of the Lord of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold. And the next step we find a little later in this whole uh, scenario in Ezekiel, it goes up to the Mount of Olives and then departs from there. And it reminds you of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, looking out over Jerusalem, his beloved city of his chosen people, and weeping and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would that you let me gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. You remember that? Okay. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark. Mark or seal is the same thing, right? Basically. It's a mark of ownership on the foreheads. See, that's what we get in Revelation 7. You remember that? A seal is put on the forehead. This is Hebrew, of course. That was Greek. And it's essentially the same idea. A seal or a mark on the foreheads of the men. That is the people. That would be men and women. Because in Hebrew, um, masculine is the generic gender. And it identifies what kind of people who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. In other words, they are not doing the abominations. They're not approving of the abominations. But they're out of harmony with those abominations. And they're in harmony with God. So God has a faithful remnant people there. Now notice, it's not enough. It's not enough 
to not be doing the abominations. Notice that? In fact, I just noticed it right now, so I had to tell you. (laughs) It's not enough to not be doing them. You need to be very much upset by them. See? Because if you're just not doing them, oh, that's okay, that's cool, that's fine. You're, You're approving of them by your silence. See? But here are people who sigh and cry. Why are they not speaking out more loudly, perhaps because they've tried and they'll be killed. We know that the prophets were doing that kind of thing. And it's amazing the lengths to which God went to wake up his people. In fact, the ultimate was with Ezekiel himself, this guy, Ezekiel. You know what happened finally? Just as an object lesson to his people of the way they were going to lose their beloved temple, God came to Ezekiel one day and he said, tonight your wife is going to die. See? Your wife is going to die. He gave Ezekiel a few hours to say goodbye to his beloved wife. He didn't just take her immediately. He mercifully gave her a few hours. But then he took the life of Ezekiel's wife just as an object lesson. Not that she had done anything bad. It wasn't a divine judgment. Nothing like that. That's one of the hazards of being a prophet. It's, um, you know, it's an occupational hazard, right? Yeah, it's an occupational hazard of being a prophet's wife, too. Yeah. And so it was just so that people... And then he was not allowed to mourn. See? Because God was trying to teach those people. Here's the prophet speaking for God. Oh, your wife is dead. What happened? This is signifying that you are going to experience what I've experienced, but it's going to be the temple for the people. That is how loudly God was screaming at his people. Out of this tremendous love, you're coming right up to that brink. Stop! And he tried every way he could, but they kept on going. Okay, so it's a mark of protection. Now, to the others he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Don't let your eyes spare, nor have pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens, little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Why begin at my sanctuary? Because that's where the leaders were who ought to know better who were leading their people astray. And you find the same kind of dynamic in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 and following. That was at Baal Peor. Baal Peor is what it's generally pronounced, but I pronounce it the Hebrew way, Baal Peor. Okay, the Baal of Peor. Okay, where the people then transgressed. They got into idolatry and immorality. And it was the leaders that led them into that. And Moses said in verse 4 of Numbers 25, uh, God told Moses to execute the leaders. See? There was a plague and a judgment later, but it was the leaders who were to bear the brunt of this because they had the awful responsibility of having led their people astray. Um, yeah, so to be a leader is a huge responsibility. And you better, you better make sure you've got a stiff backbone and a tough gut before you go into that. You know, and if you, if you, maybe you need to get some orthopedic work, spiritual orthopedic work, to strengthen your spine. All right? And some... GI work to strengthen your guts before you go into this. Of course, it's God that gives that strength, right? Yeah. But, but you've got to decide to follow him because there's a lot of wishy-washy leadership in the world in general. I'm going to say in general in a very, very broad sense where people are trying to lead by the polls and what the people want, right? And that's what happened to people like Jeroboam where he went astray. You know, he was paranoid. What, the, what, what do the people want and, and other people... But not what God wants. 
and how he, a leader is supposed to lead. A leader isn't just a follower. Okay, so they began with the elders who were before the temple. All right, terrible, terrible thing. But those who were in harmony with God were completely safe and secure, and they were a remnant that survived. Now, who are the final faithful ones? We've learned about some of the dynamics. You need to trust and believe, and you need to be a servant of God, obeying his commands, being willing to go where he, he tells you, and you need to be in harmony with him and out of sync with the corruption of this world. That's what we know about sealed people so far. But now, who are the final faithful ones? These are people who go through a special experience at a special time. The final generation of the present era, God's loyal people who live to see Christ's second coming, they go through unique end-time events preceding the second coming, and they have a special experience with God that enables them to deal with these events. So let's look at what they go through and the special experience they have in the process of being the believing servants of God. All right, the last date established by biblical time prophecy is 1844. Any generation following that can be the final generation, right? My grandparents were in Australia, and they got married back in the 1920s, and they were discussing between themselves whether they should even have children at all because Christ was coming so soon. They knew that any generation following 1844 can be the final generation. So I'm here because they decided to go ahead and occupy till I come and so on. When the gospel has, has witnessed to the whole world, then the end will come. Do we know exactly when the second coming will be? Yes, we know when the second coming will be. It will be when the gospel has gone to the whole world. That's when, the, that's when the end will come. So no date setting, no using mathematical calculations from the Bible to determine the second coming or the rapture, or, of course, we don't have that, um, or other things like that. No date setting. But this is what we need to keep an eye on. And, and, and I'm, we're seeing an explosion of the gospel going to the world, but we need a much greater explosion, much greater, to, to just... Accomplish this world in a fast time. If you just do the math and look at the statistics, uh, it's going to be a, a very long time, or even where we're not quite keeping up with population explosion to reach the whole world, right? Now, of course, this verse says that it's not when everyone is baptized in the whole world. Okay. When we have, what, 7 billion Seventh-day Adventists. Um, what it says is when the gospel, when this gospel of the kingdom has been preached as a witness. See? When have people have an opportunity to know? Has everybody had an opportunity to know yet? The answer to that is no. There are still unreached pockets and large groups. And not only that, it's not just a matter of hearing about Christ, but it's hearing the full, pure, undiluted gospel. The end time, present truth gospel. That's what needs to happen. And there's a lot of work to be done. But of course, now we have Incredible means to reach everyone. It used to be we had to go door to door in places like New York City, and there's a lot of doors, and a lot of doors don't want to open. But now we have uh, Facebook and Twitter and all those things, and we can penetrate anywhere. There's, there's no place it can't go, except maybe some places where it's banned. I mean, China, they're trying to control it, and they're even having trouble there. Okay, so that's when the end is coming, when the gospel has gone to the whole world. Now, let's 
take this seriously. Any generation following 1844 can be the final generation. Ellen White died in 1915. She was born in 1827, the year that Beethoven died. Did you know that? Right? The year Beethoven died, Ellen White was born. She died in 1915, which is three years after the Titanic went down and the second year of World War I. During her lifetime, she lived during the Victorian era, so-called, when people were quite euphoric, believing that science and technology was going to make life better and better and better. Uh, we, we were going to just progress until all the world would be at peace and, and prosperity. Okay? That bubble was pricked by World War I. And Ellen White knew and she predicted that bad things were coming. People were, however, not realizing the full extent of that until these things started to happen. But she died in 1915, Elmshaven, uh, California. She said that Christ could have returned during her lifetime if his people had cooperated in doing the gospel work. Now, if you haven't seen the following statements by Ellen White, you're in for a, a bit of a shock. And look at this. Had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening providence of God, receiving the message of the third angel, and in the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming it to the world, they would have seen the salvation of God. The Lord would have wrought mightily by, with their efforts. The work would have been completed and Christ would have come ere this, that means before this, to receive his people to their reward. So what did they fail to do? Held, they, if they had held fast their faith, followed on unitedly, receiving the message of the third angel. Ooh, that's significant. The power of the Holy Spirit. See? That's what was lacking. That's what we need in order for the work to be completed. That's pretty profound, isn't it? Okay, let's keep going. That, by the way, is in 1883, she said that, before my grandparents were born. But in the period of doubt and uncertainty that followed the disappointment, many of the Advent believers yielded their faith. Thus the work was hindered, the world was left in darkness, see, because the gospel couldn't go to the whole world, so that the end could come. Had the whole Adventist body united upon the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, where does that come from? Revelation 14, verse 12. That's the third angel's message, right? How widely different would have been our history. Okay, here's another one. Had the church of Christ done her appointed work as the Lord ordained, the whole world would have been, before this have been warned, and the Lord Jesus would have come to our earth in power and great glory, 1898. My grandmother was two years old then. Okay. Had the purpose of God being carried out by his people in giving the world the message of mercy, Christ would ere this have come to the earth. The saints would have received their welcome into the city of God, 1900. She doesn't say this just once. She says it repeatedly. See? Okay. Both before and after 1888, by the way. If every watchman on the walls of Zion had given the trumpet a certain sound, the world might ere this have heard the message of warning, but the work is years behind. While men have slept, Satan has stolen a mar march upon us. Sounds like the uh, ten virgins, right? How many of them slept? All of them. All of them slept. Okay, this is 1909, six years before she died. All right, what unique events do God's end-time people go through? Triumph of the revived papacy and its allies. That was already beginning to take place back in Ellen White's day. And if you don't um, see that happening today, then uh, where have you been? Yeah, I mean, just the picture of, just the, picture of um, the funeral of John Paul II with 
one, two, three American presidents bowing before his casket. Um, now uh, six members of the Supreme Court are Catholic, three are Jewish, no Protestant. This is the first time there's never been a Protestant on the Supreme Court. Uh, in the total history of the Supreme Court, in the 200-plus year history of the United States, there have only been 11 Catholics on the Supreme Court. Six of those, the majority of those, are on right now. Okay? Um, we're seeing all kinds of events. There's now Ronald Reagan established a... Um, there was an ambassador to the Vatican from the United States and so on. There's a lot of stuff going on that is taking shape. And you can see this in Daniel 11:40 to 43. We won't get into the details of Daniel 11, but it's very fascinating. There's a lot of argument about the king of the south, but there's pretty much agreement uh, on the king of the north being the papacy. Okay. Uh, papacy and its allies enforcing false worship. You see this in Daniel 11. Also, Revelation 13. And um, we see that this is coming as well. In fact, in so-called Christian Europe, if you go to Europe and you go to the churches, you don't find many people there, uh, but, but it's regarded as, as Christian. Uh, you find that uh, there are starting to be Sunday laws now. Things are already coming in. There are all kinds of pressures involved in this sort of thing, and we can see it coming. And also the means to do it, of course, economic coercion in Revelation 13. Nobody can buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast, right? And are we seeing ways that technology could make that possible? Yeah, absolutely. It used to be you couldn't stop anyone from buying and selling because everyone was just trading and bartering or else using cash. But it's getting to the place where a person's economic viability can just be shut down. All right. God's response. How does God respond to these challenges? Worldwide proclamation of his last appeal messages, which includes the judgment messages of the three angels and the loud cry to exit Babylon. Revelation 18, verse 4. By the way, in an ancient Babylonian text, uh, it's a text about the purification of part of the great temple of the god Marduk in Babylon. It was the part that was the guest apartment of his son, Nabu, who lived in another, well, his idol was in another town, Borsippa, came at the New Year festival. And during the rest of the year, the uh, apartment was vacant. But because it was vacant, they assumed that it could be inhabited by demons. Demons could move in. Remember what Jesus said? He said, um, if a person has a demon removed and then the place is swept and clean, the demon goes away and finds seven more wicked than himself and brings them in and they, they hang out there, right? Well, it's very interesting that there is a loud cry as part of the ritual to exorcise uh, a demon from this apartment of Marduk in Babylon. And the, the incantation says, get out, you evil demon. It's part of a ritual. So there's a loud cry to get rid of a demon in Babylon. What do we find here? We have a loud cry for God's people to get out of Babylon because it's become a habitation of demons. That's kind of interesting, huh? Yeah, so uh, not much changes. Elijah, message of relational reconciliation. We'll talk about the three angels' messages, particularly the third and the Elijah message a little bit later. The end of Christ's heavenly sanctuary ministry of intercession and judgment, which is the close of probation, Daniel 12, verse 1, Michael stands up. You remember at the end of Acts, 
where Stephen is about to be stoned, and he's being stoned, and then just before he, they drag him away, uh, he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Right? Standing. <laughs> well, what was he doing standing? Because it says in several passages of Scripture, like Hebrews 1, verse 3, and 8, verse 1, that Jesus sat down when he went back to heaven. So what's he doing standing up? I like what Morris Venon said years ago at PUC Church. He said he wasn't going to take that sitting down. Oh, yeah, his servant being under attack, and that's really good. And that's true. It's, it's deliverance when he stands up. But there's another aspect to it, too, because he stands up there. What is the date when he stands up, when Stephen is stoned? That's 34 A.D. That's the end of the 490 years, right? So this is a close of probation. This is a judgment. When he's standing up, it's all over. We're done. We got a verdict. Boom. And so he stands up. Verdict for the world. Time of trouble such as never was. This is the close of probation. When he that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. Okay, so this is all going on during the lifetime of the final generation, which could be us. And I pray that it is us. All right. Compare the Day of Atonement, Israel's Judgment Day, when he has made an end of atoning for the most holy place, the tabernacle meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. There is an end of the atonement, that is the purification of the heavenly temple. And it says in Daniel 8, 14, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, but there is an end to the cleansing of the sanctuary. When that ends, the high priest has finished his intercession. Right? And then he goes and dispatches the live goat, which in Revelation 20 represents Satan, who's cast into the bottomless pit, okay, which is the equivalent of the wilderness. All right. So here is the end of Christ's priestly intercessory ministry. Now, what happens during that time? When he, that is Christ, leaves the sanctuary, darkness covers the inhabitants of the earth. In that fearful time, the righteous must live in the sight of a holy God without an intercessor. How many of you have never seen this before? I'm just curious. Have you all seen it before? Some of you haven't? Okay. This is, my question was, how many have never seen this, this comment before? This is the great controversy. Page 614. Yeah. This is something, this has had an immense impact upon Adventists. This little statement right there, that sentence, just that one sentence. And it's created a lot of fear. And it's created, well, two kinds of reactions it's created. One is a reaction that, oh, I need to be perfect. See? And then there are different theories about how we can be perfect. And some people say, well, we're going to have perfect natures. No, that's not true because we're still corruptible until the second coming, according to 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 15, rather. 1 Corinthians 15. Of course, corruptible means mortal. But that comes with everything that goes with this mortal body, which includes the weaknesses and the propensities to sin. I'm going kind of fast, aren't I? Are you okay? Hanging in there? Okay, good. Um, but then the other reaction is the opposite direction. I give up. I can't be perfect. And because sinning is like breathing, I'm going to go on sinning a thousand times a day, and so I have to adopt a different view of how justification and sanctification works that doesn't really involve my transformation. It's just a legal concept up there. You see how those two things go? And both are wrong. Both are imbalanced. So how do we react to this? Well, first of all, we need to point out the limitations of that. This is the time of trouble. 
going on, and then the time of Jacob's trouble. But um, within this, without an intercessor does not mean that you don't have Christ through his spirit with you. It doesn't mean that you don't have a mediator for your prayers, right? You need a mediator, an intercessor, to be able to pray to God, right? That's Revelation 8, for one thing, where the incense goes up from the hand of the angel with the prayers of the saints. That kind of intercession isn't stopping. But the point is, the point is that when Christ stops his intercession for sin, sinful actions and thoughts, and so on, so we will be in harmony with him at that point. Now, to what extent and how? Well, that is up to him. I'm going to let him worry about the details, see? Because if I get all obsessed with perfection and I've got to be perfect, and there's this list that includes, you know, a few thousand items. It's growing longer all the time. Um, and in fact, it's really not just a list. It's, it's all embracing. <laughs> it's bigger than a list. Like God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 1, he said, Walk before me and be blameless. And that word for blameless is tamim. It's the same word used of unblemished uh, sacrificial victims or unblemished priests. See, you've got to walk before him and be unblemished, blameless in every way. And those who are saved, according to Revelation, are blameless. And how are, how are we going to do that? Well, if I look at myself and, and I think about how perfect am I, you know, well, oh, not totally, you know. Oh, dear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Um, yeah, you see? And you can get really paranoid and upset and depressed. In fact, you can be like Peter, looking at the wind and the waves, looking at all the obstacles, and you can lose faith and get discouraged. And that's what Satan wants, and he's going to help with the process. Oh, Satan loves to point out your faults. Now, you see, it's one thing to stand in front of the perfect law of liberty, the mirror that God gives us, and allow Christ to point them out. But when he points them out, he gives you a way of dealing with it. Right? But Satan points it out, and then he says, <laughs> eventually mine. It kind of reminds me of an undertaker uh, back in California, and there was an embalmer who used to work for him, a mortician, who told me that the undertaker used to sign his letters, not yours truly, but eventually mine. See? Yeah. So Satan looks at us, yes. He's going to be the last to let you down. Yeah. And, and so he's looking at us, accusing us. Zechariah 3, you remember? Remember the high priest, Joshua? And he's accusing, and he's saying, eventually mine. But God takes care of the problem. He clothes. See, he does the work. And we don't have to get all paranoid about that. We have to focus on following Christ. What did Caleb do according to Numbers chapter 14? God said, he's going to go into the promised land because he's followed God wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, total devotion, total commitment, wholeheartedly, all the way. Now, if we follow God wholeheartedly, if we say, as Mary said, let it be to me according to your word, he is going to take us through. He's going to do for us what needs to happen. Do we understand what needs to happen? Absolutely not. Just like I didn't know what needed to happen when I stood outside that classroom and I said, God, I don't know what needs to happen. Just use me. Do what you want to do. And he did. So rather than getting bogged down and particularly rather than saying, that is impossible. If you say that's impossible, that God can take you through that for anyone to be saved, then the next step is you deny the close of probation. 
That is the end of the judgment. If there's an end of the judgment, there's a beginning. So if you want to do away with the end of the judgment, you've got to wipe out the beginning. Do you see now why so, some people are just hell-bent on getting rid of 1844? It's a domino effect. And, and it, it, all has, it has to do with whether you believe that he is able to keep you from falling. Jude 24. See? Do you really believe he's able to do this? He created the world. He created you. But can he keep you from falling? Yes, absolutely. And if you, but if you don't believe that, then you, you start knocking down one thing after another. You take down the transformation by the Spirit, the seal of God, all of that. That has to go. Close of probation has to go. Beginning of the judgment has to go because nobody could be saved if that's the case. And of course, who proclaimed the truth of the message, the, the pre-advent judgment message beginning in 1844? Ellen White. And Ellen White then has to go. You see how that works? And what is going on is people are not accepting. They're not having faith and believing that God is able to take them through. And it's because of that kind of faith. What is God going to say to them? Like at Kadesh Barnea, the people said when God promised them, hey, come on, it's time, let's go in. And they said, no, we can't. There's giants, there's human sources in there. You know, it's, it's a dangerous place. There's high walls and... and there are more of, their, more of them than there are of us. We don't have the budget or the infrastructure and the, and the resources. We, we just we can't do this thing. And they said, no, we're not going in. We're afraid. We'd rather go back to Egypt. God says, okay, you're going back to Egypt. Yeah? But they ended up wandering around in the wilderness until they all died. Yeah. What was supposed to be a seminary turned out to be a cemetery. Yeah, pretty tragic. Okay. And so there's the time of trouble. And the time of Jacob, ooh, the time of Jacob's trouble. Aren't Adventists terrified at the time of Jacob's trouble? We'd almost rather die before it comes than have to go through all this stuff, right? Well, let me tell you something about the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, or let me ask you something. That's in Genesis 32. Where was Jesus when Jacob was wrestling with the angel of the Lord? Where was Jesus? wrestling with him because he was the angel of the Lord. So where was Jesus? He didn't abandon him. He's in his arms as close as he could get. Right? Just remember that, folks. Yes, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. Like Jesus was on the cross and he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. He trusted in one thing alone and that was the word of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the rest of that Psalm 22, as my rabbi, my teacher at Berkeley pointed out, a rabbi, who didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, pointed out that the rest of that psalm is becoming a triumph so that at the end, God has taken him through and what has God wrought? What has, what has God done? It is finished, you see? So what Jesus was saying, he didn't have the, the strength to say the whole psalm. He was just saying the, the first words. I learned that from my rabbi. Uh, saying the first words, my God, my God, why have you ever forsaken me? And he says it in Aramaic. Lama Sabachthani. Sabachthani is Aramaic. The Hebrew says Azavtani. He says it in Aramaic so everyone could hear. And what Jesus is saying is, think Psalm 22. Think the whole thing. See, Jesus was saying, I believe I'm, I'm going to get through this, even though right now I can't see. We're separated. It was like an explosion. You know, it's like the, the atom. The atom is not supposed to be split, is it? It's a unit. 
That's like the Trinity. It's not supposed to be split. It's closer than marriage. So if it's split, it's not just like a divorce. It's like a splitting of an atom. Sin penetrated. Christ bore it. He became sin for us. Uh, he who knew no sin became sin. So that this atom of the Trinity was split and there was an explosion, a nuclear explosion of suffering. That's what happened. And so he walked by faith and not by sight. And so we're going to be walking by faith, not by sight, but he will not abandon us. He will be with us right to the end. Now, you had a comment, please? Thank you. So it was not the wrestling of rebellion against God. And it was more than anything. It was wrestling with himself more than anything, really, wasn't it? With his own unbelief. But there God is wanting to give him a new identity, a new start, like a new birth. And he ends up giving him a new name, Israel. And what do we receive according to the letters to the seven churches? We receive a new name, which means a new identity. Praise the Lord for that. Yeah, when you, when you receive a new name, it's because of a new relationship. My daughter's getting married June 3. She's going to receive a new name because of a new relationship. And that's beautiful. Okay. Um, so let's go on a little bit here. And, all right. But Christ will continue to be with his people. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How long is that? All the way through the time of trouble. Praise the Lord. Through the time of Jacob's trouble. Without an intercessor, that's to deal with sins, but it doesn't exclude mediation of prayers. Christ was closer to Jacob than ever during the time of trouble. All right. The rest of her offspring will have a special experience with God. These are the people who go through the, to the end who are a remnant, the rest or remnant, of the offspring of the faithful woman there in Revelation 12 that stands for God's people. And so these are the ones who keep the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus. This is really the third angel's message in advance, isn't it? That's the same thing. What is the testimony of Jesus? The spirit of prophecy. Now, that's not only referring to uh, the work of Ellen White. Her work is uh, a manifestation and a huge manifestation of that work. And we need to listen to her. After all, in the days of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet, when he was prophesying to the people about what was going to happen, the people were not listening to him. Were they? Was he a canonical prophet? Was he a canonical prophet at that time? He was a prophet. He was a literary writing prophet, but he was a non-canonical prophet at that time. What they wanted to uh, do was to listen to Micah. They said, hey, Micah said the city will not be destroyed. That was because it was a century earlier about another event when the situation was different. And they wanted to listen to Micah not to present truth of the latest of God's prophets. See? And they needed to listen to Jeremiah. 
So you need to be on the cutting edge with this prophecy thing and keep in touch with God's message that is specifically for you. Yes, the important prophecies are important. You've got to put them in context, but you need to be there. We are just as responsible for listening to the messages through Ellen White as the people were for listening to Jeremiah. Okay? So that's very, very uh, important. She says that her work is the lesser light to lead to the greater light. She also says that if people had fully followed the scriptures, they wouldn't have needed her. It's also true that we need to um, interpret her writings, not just have a knee-jerk reaction. I think this is what it means, therefore I read that into scripture. We always have to study scripture for what it means in its context and read Ellen White and interpret what she's saying in relation to scripture as commentary. Rightly dividing the word of truth, not knee-jerk reaction, okay? But we do need to listen to the spirit of prophecy because after all, what did Jesus say one of the roles of the spirit is to do? To teach you all things and to teach you what is to come, right? Remember that? John 14, we read it yesterday. Okay. Then a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image, receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand. All right, here's the battle of the marks. See? The mark of the beast or the mark of protection for God's people. The seal of God. And he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Here's the patience of the saints. Saints as holy ones, that's God's people. That's you and me, right? Because we've accepted Christ. We've been sealed by the Spirit. You were washed. You were sanctified, made holy. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. So you are the saints, the holy ones. It's not the, you know, the little people with the halo that uh, do all kinds of things and they uh, live as hermits and, and all the rest. No, that's not it. It's the people of God. Full-blooded, full blooded, <laughs> uh-huh. total people who are doing God's work, who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Let's talk about what that means. Two elements to the message of the third angel. You remember what Ellen White said, that the message of the third angel is what people need to act on and to live out and to accept in order to go home. So this is it. If there is any verse in the Bible that gives us our marching orders, our mission statement, it's this one, which is really a specialization of the Great Commission in Matthew, in Matthew, where Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to do whatsoever I have commanded you. And here he says, keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Those are the two verses, by the way, that are on the front of the seminary building. They uh, have copied those there because we realize that that is our mission statement. So what is this? We've done pretty well with the commandments of God as Adventists, at least we thought we did, until we realized that the commandments are all based upon love. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. And you know there are no loopholes in love? There were no loopholes in what God commanded uh, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless, no loopholes at all. It's not just lists, it's based on love, Jesus said, Matthew Matthew 22, and he's, Jesus is precisely making this point to plug all the loopholes. There's this young, young guy who says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. Oh, I've done all that from my youth up, you know. It's like somebody who said, I have been one righteous man all my life, from infantry to adultery. No, okay, no, that was bad. That didn't come out right. Um, but but I've, I've done all the commandments. I've done all the commandments. And Jesus is pointing out to him, wait a minute, there's something you lack. There's something you lack. 
You, you, need the love of, you need the love of God. Go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. See, because love is bigger than... These commandments are examples, right? Examples. They're not the totality of the moral law of God. You can find other moral laws in the Bible besides what are just the Ten Commandments, right? Such as don't oppress your neighbor or help the poor, things like that. Um, and there's some other things that go beyond the limited scope of, say, committing adultery. There are other kinds of ways to break the overall spirit of, of purity there that's in that commandment. But in any case, love embraces all of the uh, commands uh, for, uh, with regard to relationships with God and human beings. The other thing is the faith of Jesus. Now, Ellen White emphasized, particularly later in her ministry from about 1888 on, she emphasized the faith of Jesus a lot. And this faith of Jesus works through love. Galatians 5, verse 6. So love is central to the third angel's message. All right? Okay. Commandments, faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus was exercised because God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the works of Jesus were manifestations of God's love. And so that is what is central. God's heart reaching out to ours. You can't separate the commandments of God really from the faith of Jesus. Is this making sense? Yeah. But we, we as Adventists have tended to be rather legalistic. You know, there's nothing legalistic about God's law. The law is not legalistic. Neither is obedience, true obedience to God's law, legalistic. Wow. We get accused for, for obeying God. That's not legalistic. What's legalistic is using God's law, or any other law, for a purpose for which it's not intended. Namely, one, to achieve salvation through works of the law. That's Babylon-based religion. Remember we talked about Babylon versus Bethel? Right? That's building up through your own works. There's another way that we use the law. What's that? To hit people over the head. To gain power over them. Because the people that make the standards to which other people adhere gain power. Just look at Bill Gates. The MS-DOS operating system, Windows, everyone needs to be based on that. He gets rich and powerful. See how that works? The ancient Pharisees started off as a political party known as the Hasidim, the righteous ones, according to Jacob Neusner in his book, From Politics to Piety. They started as a political party. They wanted political power and wealth. And then they realized they couldn't get it through political means, and they turned to religious means to gain the same results. Does it sound like a religious coalition? Huh? Yeah, pretty scary stuff. And so they realized that they could gain power if they would make the religious rules that other people had to abide by then they could be in charge and dictate their lives. And that's what they were doing in Jesus' day, adding to Scripture all kinds of traditions that went above and beyond Scripture to make life uh, difficult, but make people feel more righteous, as if they're gaining salvation, following God. And all of this was coming as, oh, this is the word of the Lord. It wasn't, they weren't saying, well, this is my idea, and therefore you need to follow my idea. They were saying, what I'm saying to you is the word of the Lord. Do we have that dynamic going on today at all? Some people have a particular uh, kind of an idea 
whether a lunar Sabbath or you, you can only use the King James Version Bible or you don't want to accept the, the Holy Spirit as a real person or the divinity of Jesus or, you know, some quirky little fad that's going around. And what's it about? Well, they're making you feel like a guilt trip, like it's bad if you don't accept what they have because you're rejecting God. But what is it, what's it really about? It's about elitism, it's about power, it's about ego, and it's about control. That's what it's about. You get my drift? Okay? May the Lord save us from that kind of thing. And this kind of thing splits churches, and it keeps people from doing what's really important. I, I was going to a church years ago where there was a whole Sabbath school class that was, that was studying the, um, the uh, studies or videos or whatever work of, of a certain pseudo-archaeologist, um, and who was going around, he could discover more in an afternoon than a professional archaeologist could find in a whole lifetime because he, he found it, didn't really know what he was looking at, but he took videos to make it look like, wow, you know, he took, a, he took pictures of Pharaoh's chariot wheels in the Red Sea. Well, they were actually round natural formations. So he found, um, he said he found the Ark of the Covenant and Noah's Ark and everything, but he never really produced real evidence and and, and he had all these claims and these weird theological theories. And, and this whole Sabbath school class in the Adventist church I was going to was studying that. You see, the problem with that is even if that were uh, true, which it wasn't, it was a bunch of garbage. He was a con man, basically, uh, selling videos. Um, and, but even if, even if that were true, we get distracted. We need to focus on the most important things. Because if we don't, if we don't, then we are going to miss what holds it all together, and that is Christ. Okay, so we need desperately the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, this has been interpreted differently. The faith of Jesus, does that mean the faith that we receive from Jesus, or is it our faith in Jesus, or is it the faith that Jesus had and manifested? And there is some pretty strong evidence that, well, it's probably all of the above, <laughs> which it can be. As in Revelation 1, verse 1, it starts off the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is it from Jesus? Yes. Is it about Jesus? Yes. Okay? So that's the way I'm leaning on this, but there's strong evidence that this does include, at least, at least include the idea that it's the faithfulness of Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus. Wow. What does that mean? We trust in the commandments of God and the faithfulness of Jesus to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in and for and through us and on the basis of what we see that he did when he was here on earth. We hold fast to his faithfulness. He is our substitute, our redeemer. He is everything to us. And he's giving us the spirit. And so we're trusting in him. We need much greater reliance upon Jesus. That's what we need. And that's what Ellen White was trying to encourage her church to do in 1888. And a lot of the leading brethren um, were upset with her, didn't accept that. And they sent, it, sent her off into exile for a few years to... Australia, where I was born. So there's a house, and that was a great blessing to Australia, down under. Okay. But that explains partly why the Adventist believers didn't go home at that time. She said, Jesus should have come ere this. And they got up to the borders of the Promised Land and turned around. We'll get to that a little bit more later. Growth in love is sanctification, is victory over sin that the Lord accomplishes in us. All right, so look at this. I, I read this verse yesterday. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. So growth in love is sanctification. 
growth in holiness. And this is the victory over sin so that you may be blameless that the Lord accomplishes in us to get us ready for the second coming. Pretty powerful stuff, eh? Yeah. So as I pointed out yesterday, this sanctification is practical, down to earth, growing in love from day to day. And we receive that love from the Holy Spirit. God has always been able to give victory over falling. Do you really believe Jude 24? He is able to keep you from falling? He is able. There are a lot of folks that don't believe that. But I believe it. He is able. And um, to sin, it, it's, sinning is not natural to human beings. Christ's life proved that, right? That's what he came to demonstrate. You don't have to sin to be human. Corporate holiness as a group is shown in righteous deeds as God's gift. Now, we've been talking about individual um, victory, but here, corporate holiness, corporate sanctification. Have you ever heard that term? Neither have I. Just made it up right now. <laughs> A corporate sanctification as a group. All of us becoming holy together. And we support ourselves and we help each other in this process. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Christ loves the church. That's us, you and me. As a husband loves his bride. He's never going to abandon his bride. Right? It says, says that. And the uh, bride is washed by Christ by the washing of water with the word to make her without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You want to be in good shape for the wedding, right? You don't want to have all kinds of wrinkles and and problems. You want to be, yeah, and Christ, but Christ is the one that does that, see? It's not that you do it by yourself. Revelation 19, 7 to 8 is about the marriage of the Lamb. And the bride is clothed with fine linen, which is the righteous deeds. It's not the abstract Greek word, dikaiosune. It's the more concrete word, dikaiomata, plural, neuter, plural, Righteous deeds of the saints. But notice, it was given to her. It was given. It's not a matter of us just accomplishing that by our own blood, toil, tears, and sweat. It's Christ's blood, toil, tears, and sweat that gives us the victory. Corporate holiness. This is not a unique faith and loyal obedience that has never happened before. In other words, the experience of God's people at the end is not a unique kind of quality of faith that nobody else has had before. See, if it were, that would be really scary, wouldn't it? There's going to be something we're going to be, we're going to be put into a, a state that nobody has ever, we've never seen this before. Yes, we have. We've seen it in the life of Abraham, who grew, and what did he grow in? He grew to trust in God. And it was accounted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6, and God called him to be blameless and in Genesis 22, 15 to 18, he was willing to give up his future, everything, walking by faith, not by sight, when God called Abraham, Abraham, take now your son, then he rubbed it in, your only son, and then he rubbed it in again, Isaac, whom you love, and go to a mountain that I'll show you. Okay, so Abraham got to the point, whereas back in Genesis 12, he's so afraid when he goes to Egypt of his own skin, He's afraid to lose his own skin that he uh, doesn't even protect his wife and she ends up in Pharaoh's harem, right? And then later, you know, he's not trusting and there's a story about Hagar and everything and then finally he's totally trusting God. That's what it takes. Yes, question. In a corporate body, that's what we're getting to. Good point. Okay, so it's a unique power and scope of corporate experience. 
as God's gifts to deal with unique events. So there are two things that are special about this. Yes, we've seen it in the lives of individuals. But as you correctly pointed out, anticipating my next uh, statement here, um, this is something that we've never seen on this scope before with a whole group of people. Yes, there were a bunch of Israelites who trusted in God, but they had various kinds of problems. They weren't totally there. And, uh, but, but one generation did go in, take the promised land. But then the elders who, and, and all the people who outlived Joshua and the elders at that time, then they went off the deep end and they forgot all that the Lord had done for Israel. So there has been individual and some corporate, but we're going to see a power and scope of corporate experience to deal with unique events. So God is not giving us a, a unique experience in a sense of following him, but he's going to take us to where nobody else has gone before. All right. It's a, it's a unique journey. Yes, please. It's, it's not going to be different in that sense, but it's going to be different in light of the unique events at the end time that I pointed out. We have this tremendous, massive clash at the climax of the Great Controversy with the, the beast and the, all of this kind of stuff that wasn't there. They had other things that they were countering, other challenges, and there was power. So there's a lot of similarity, but there are some special things. And also, they didn't have to go through the time of trouble or the close of probation or living without, without a holy God, without a, I mean, before a holy God without a mediator. They didn't have to go through that kind of thing. Okay, that was my point. We're going to take a break in just a moment for five minutes, but let's just get through this section. Everything about our experience with God is possible only through His gifts, not our performance. We've been pretty performance-oriented, haven't we? But it's only His gifts. In fact, all of our faith, works, and efforts only receive God's gifts of grace. Now, that's a hard concept for us to, to really grasp. What about all the agonizing? What about the cooperating? And what about all the effort that we put in in Christian life? And all the money that we spend getting to GYC? And all of that kind of stuff. This is only ever... I'm usually not this dogmatic, okay? It's only ever, always, part of receiving the gift that you already have. Because salvation is there waiting for you. The mansions are there, John 14, uh, 1 to 3. There are mansions that have been built that are just waiting for us and the title is in the bank just waiting for you to go and take it and God had said to the Israelites the land of, of, of Canaan the promised land belongs to you you just have to go up and appropriate what is already yours see sometimes it takes efforts to receive a gift doesn't it when I got married in 1980 yeah that's a while ago um <laughs> now you know how old I am. Okay, I'll tell you. I'm 56. All right. Um, got married in 1980. And um, we went away for a honeymoon to Hawaii. And we came back. And we opened wedding presents. And we opened more wedding presents. And then we opened more. It, it took all day opening wedding presents. Because we got married in Sonora. And the church people loved us. A couple of young people. We were in a musical group. And we did things in the church and so on. And so they gave us, lavished all these gifts. My wife's family had a lot of friends and so on. And so we opened gifts all day and we got tired from opening wedding presents. That's a good kind of tired, isn't it? <laughs> but it was only receiving the gift. You see the point? Okay. So 
it can be effort, yes. What is the struggling, what is the agonizing in prayer that we have as part of this? It's to give up on ourselves, right? Receiving a gift can be hard because you've got to let go of your pride. You've got to say, I need help. And that's tough, especially for men, I think. Men don't want to ask directions, right? They want to do it on their own. And so the ladies are screaming at them, why didn't you stop you? <laughs> and... And, and when we, you know, we have degrees behind our name, we're trained for the time we're little to be self-sufficient, to stand on our own, do all that kind of stuff. Our Western culture is teaching us that, ingraining that within us, and then all of a sudden we have to say, I am totally helpless. I cannot do a thing, not one thing, to get to heaven. It's all grace, 100%. And that is where the agonizing comes in. We provide loyal acceptance and cooperation. It's God who perfects, matures our characters. Compare Mary's words, let it be to me according to your word, saying yes. Okay, let's take a break there of five minutes, and then we'll come back to talk about, ah, the atonement and vindicating himself. People don't vindicate him. That's what we're going to talk about. All right, continuing. And we're, we're going to get to our climax here. We're building. So um, keep your seat belts fastened. And <laughs> All right. We've been talking about what God does for people at the end. And we can compare this experience with what happened on the Day of Atonement. Notice what the people were to do. You shall afflict your souls, which means practice self-denial, including fasting and other things. It's, it's really activities of mourning, in this case for sin, and showing loyalty to God. And do no work at all, so keep Sabbath. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Do you get the impression that it had something to do with you? <laughs> it's pretty emphasized, right? In other words... While the high priest is doing this work of atonement behind closed doors in the sanctuary, God's people were to be participating in the event, just as Esther asked the people of Susa to participate by fasting while she went in to the king. All right. So the Israelites were to show loyalty to receive God's gift of vindication, resulting from the vindication of his sanctuary administration. At the end time, we see this too, and in the same way, God vindicates himself. People don't vindicate him. Now, this last statement here is in contradiction to um, a man who is very much respected in Adventist circles, did a lot of good, was a great theologian. His name is M. L. Andreasen. And he correctly believed in victory over sin. But he had this idea that God's people vindicate him by, le by living perfect holy lives. Now, it's true that he is able to keep them from falling, and he will grow them to the point that they are no longer committing sin. And as we said, he'll make the church without blemish and spotless and all the rest. That's all true. But I'm not comfortable with the idea that we are vindicating God to show that his law can be kept in the universe. Yes, there's some truth in that, but... The emphasis is on what God does. God vindicates himself. See, it was God who appointed the priest 
to do that work of cleansing the sanctuary. God vindicates his sanctuary, which represents his reputation, and the people receive vindication or cleansing as a result, secondarily. And so our vindication is through him vindicating himself. And whatever vindication he accomplishes through us, he is the one doing that. To him goes all of the glory. See? In other words, and that makes a, a, a very important distinction. It's, it's not our performance oriented. By my performance, I help God. See? It's rather God is giving me a gift which I'm receiving and God is showing how great a God he is by doing that. Just as God showed his power in letting the Israelites out of Egypt and taking them into the land of Canaan. He demonstrated his own power and character. Okay. The latter reign of the Holy Spirit is a special experience that God's people have. In Joel 2, it refers to a former and a latter reign. And in this context, it's speaking about the land of Israel, where you had different rains before the harvests. And we can see that the experience of Pentecost was like the former reign of the Spirit, because Joel 2 also talks about the outpouring of the Spirit. And then the latter rain will be another but greater outpouring that prepares the grain for harvest right at the end. Okay? So this is a special experience, the latter rain of the Holy Spirit, but what we haven't realized is the power of the latter rain is love. See? Did you realize that? I didn't until I got into this. The power of the latter rain is love. We've thought that it was some kind of seismic shaking and all kinds of manifestations and miracles. The greatest miracle is love. Now, there may be other manifestations along with it, but I'm talking about the main power of the latter rain is love. Yes, there can be healings. There can be all kinds of amazing things like there were in Acts 2. And we look forward to that. There may be some speaking in tongues because not all of us know all of the languages of the world. I've done my best to learn a few of them, but still have a lot to learn. And so the Spirit may help us with that as well. But the basic power is love that breaks down all of the barriers and that makes it possible for us to go and reach the unreachable. Let me tell you a story about reaching the unreachable. There was a, a Chinese man years ago by the name of uh, Fook. Fook was his first name. And he uh, felt sorry for his fellow Chinese people who were being sent as slaves to work in mines in Africa in a place called Demerara. And they were worked literally to death underground. And they were not having any hope because they didn't understand about Jesus. They hadn't heard about him. And they were just dying. And he felt terribly sorry for these poor people. But how could he get to them? How could he reach them? The slave owners of the business only cared about exploiting the slaves. They were not going to let him in to preach the gospel. He had no way to get to them except one way. He sold himself as a slave and went and worked with them. And he died there as a slave. But before he died, he had shared the gospel so that 200 precious people had accepted hope in Jesus. That's called reaching the unreachable. And that is tough love. See? 
Now, what did Jesus do? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, verse 5 and following, who, though he was in the form of God, counted not equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and became human flesh. And becoming human flesh, he suffered death, even death on a cross. He goes down, 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 down to reach the unreachable. See? So that's what it's all about. We're, we're emulating the love of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, was, which was a mind of love and humility and service for others. <clears throat> Our service may be different in all kinds of ways. Some of us are called to serve in one way or another. But wherever we are, it's a life of living for others, not for ourselves. Totally against uh, the uh, prevailing lifestyle. All right, so the power of the latter rain is love and other gifts to the Spirit. Where do we get love? From the Spirit. That's why the Spirit is so crucial. The Spirit gives us that love, which gives us the power to witness to all the world so that the end can come. It's as simple as that, in a summary, in a nutshell. As one Methodist minister said, he said, if you get that point in your head, you'll have it in a nutshell. All right. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, it's one of my worst faults, my sense of humor. I apologize. Okay. Maybe the Lord will give me victory over it. <laughs> but the fruit of the Spirit... However, on the other hand, I use uh, a little bit of humor as a way to help wake people up and keep them concentrating. So it's kind of a pedagogic device. You know? And even Jesus had humor. Um, I mean, for example, the story about the, the wedding uh, where somebody had an excuse and they said, Oh, I've bought a yoke of oxen and I still have to try them out. Or I've got, I bought some land, I have to go and have a look at it. Look, if you've ever lived in Israel, being in that environment, you know that that is hilarious. Nobody will ever buy anything without checking it out first. Buyer beware, okay? And so it's hilarious. I mean, it's, Jesus is making fun of that whole uh, scenario. Okay, so anyway, I still have to watch my humor. Um, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. We talked about this yesterday. And... That's Galatians. This outpouring of the Spirit at the end speeds up the maturity and unity of God's people for the purpose of empowering their witness to God's love. And the way it works is like this. When you go to an elevator, how many of you used an elevator this morning? Quite a few. I did too. Okay. And you, you choose the direction you want to go, right? You hit the button. Bingo. You choose the direction. Now, who chooses the speed that the elevator goes? You don't have an accelerator in there. Let's speed this baby up. You know, I want to get to 24th floor, get to the swimming pool. There's a swimming pool, great lap pool, in the Hilton on the 24th floor, by the way. I expect to see you all there this evening for some exercise. Okay, so I was there last night. Uh, um, so you hit the button, and, but you know what God does? You choose which direction you want to go, but then he speeds up the elevator. That's what the Holy Spirit does with the latter rain at the end. That's how it works with the 11th hour Laborer, you remember the parable of Jesus? That somebody comes in and they labor through all the heat of the day and everything and someone comes in the 11th hour and they get the same reward. Well, it's all fair because it's according to God's rules and his rule is pure grace. Okay? And so what he does is, how is it going to happen that this, this person who's, who's converted just right before the end, they haven't had the whole life of going to... GYC every year and learning to, to, to eat vegan and, and do all these wonderful other things that we learn and learning about the, all the details. No, but God speeds up the process. See? He'll speed it up for all of us. We all need that speed up at the end. 
And so that's how it is that he's able to get us to the point that we're no longer committing acts of sin. In other words, we outgrow sin and he is able to walk off the job. Wow. Let's, let's just consider that just for a moment, that last point there about, um, that I was making about walking off the job. It speeds up the maturity and unity so that we have power for witness, okay? But as I was saying, Christ doesn't wait till a certain point and then all of a sudden, bingo, and he cuts off a lot of people and their salvation. See? The purpose of, of this speeding up is so that everyone has an opportunity to get to where they need to get for him in order to be saved. Because otherwise, we're all growing at all these different rates and we're at different places and the grain needs to ripen. When you look at a field of corn in Michigan, you know, it's all the same height, right? Yeah? And, but we're all growing at different rates. But he wants to develop us and so he speeds things up, gets that process going so that wherever we are, he's able then to save us with, without just cutting somebody off. He's not waiting uh, to, to see if he can, oh, got him. Right? That's not the way it works. Now, back in California, I used to work construction to put myself through school, and I was helping to build a house down in the uh, vineyard area of Napa Valley. And so when I got done with that job and the house was built, there was no job for me. I was not fired. I was doing a good job, at least to the best of my ability at that point. And when the job was done, then I was let go because the job was done. Jesus is not going to be fired. He's not going to quit. He's just going to walk off the job when the job is done. See? And when that happens, he no longer needs to intercede for sin because we will have outgrown sin. Okay? All right. Now, exactly to... When we think about sin, there are different ways to look at sin. One is sinful actions or thoughts. Another one is that our whole nature is depraved and we have these sinful propensities, those stay with us till Christ's second coming. But what is perfected is our character, which is developed. It's the habits of our lives that come from the, um, the continual living out and the decisions that we may make, and that is going to be purified by God. Okay? And so, as a result, Christ is able to... Um, to quit. Now look at this next passage. This is beautiful. This is um, Jesus in John 17, his great prayer. And it's often referred to as a high priestly prayer where he's interceding for his people. This is the night that he was betrayed. And he says, I don't pray for these alone, that is the 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Do you get the power of that? Unity. Christ makes us one with himself. Now, you see, we said yesterday that the love of God, because God is love, he was love back at the beginning, and that shows that there was a trinity in the beginning, because love has to involve interpersonal interaction. And so there was love in the beginning. Now, here that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us. We become united with that, that trinity. That's incredible. doesn't mean that we become gods, like some religions believe, but we're united in character, that character of love. And the purpose is that the world may believe that you sent me. 
Believe me, if God's people were united like that and united with God like that, it would show to such a great degree that the world would know. And people now already do notice when that is happening. They notice a difference in people's lives. Uh, I, I've had, I'm sure you've had this experience too, but years ago I was studying at Nebraska Wesleyan University studying music, and one day I was just there in the practice room area, and a young guy, a friend of mine, he was a wonderful jazz player, uh, but he came up to me and he said, I, I really didn't know him that well. He wasn't, when I say friend, he was just an acquaintance. Uh, but he came up to me and he said, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, how did you know? I'd never mentioned this. There's just something about you, I can tell. Yeah. So it can, and you've had that, that happen to you too, right? People can just tell and that the world may believe. And if we're all one, united, oh, that's not the way people get along, is it? They're always at each other's throats and they're, they're so that and, and they just, but if everyone is all helping each other, nurturing each other, looking out for each other's good. That is a demonstration that we are the body of Christ. And people notice. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you sent me. And have loved them as you have loved me. So if we're receiving the love of God, then we will have that unity which is a manifestation of love and that demonstrates Christ. We're representing Christ to the world. Right? Okay. Now, what about the power of relational reconciliation? This is the Elijah message. And notice, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of of the, whoop, the great and ter- dreadful day of the Lord. What is that? The great and dreadful day of the Lord. What is that? That is the second coming of Christ. That's what Joel 2 refers to. There will be signs and wonders. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the same day. It's the second coming of Christ, right? The end of the world as we know it. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Whoa. Wait a minute. Elijah. We like Elijah, don't we? Yeah, Elijah's a great, great person. And, of course, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah to make, prepare the way of the Lord for, for Christ. But what we expect as end-time Adventists, we expect Elijah to do something really dramatic, like make fire come down on Mount Carmel, or better yet, to consume the beast and all of our adversaries, right? That's what we really expect, huh? Isn't that what we want? But all he does before the coming of the great and dreadful... And, and you know, we're, we're in anticipation here. Something huge is going to happen, right? And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This sounds like an anticlimax. <laughs> Something small. What is going on here? What's, so big, what's the big deal about that? Well, we need to learn about the still small voice message of God. This is a message of love, Oh, we have commandments and we have love which is in harmony with the faith of Jesus. This is the third angel's message for the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, really for us, isn't it? It's the same thing. And it's at the same time before the second coming of Christ. Notice, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The word for curse there, and this is the last word of the Hebrew Bible, is the word harem, which is not any, any ordinary word for curse. It's referring to the devotion 
to God for, in the case of Canaanite cities, utter destruction. So it's sacral destruction that is given over to God to be wiped out. All right, so that's pretty serious, and that's what's going to happen at the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But notice, turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This, of course, is an example of relational reconciliation. It could also refer to turning the hearts of husbands to wives and wives to husbands and you know, uh, all kinds of other members of society. It also has a historic view, you know, faith of our fathers turning to the faith of our spiritual ancestors. So it's rich. Commandments based on love, relational reconciliation, renewal of love. And that is the message. Let's just go back to that. That's the message of Elijah, which is very much the message of the third angel. This, my friends, is present truth. If we are peacemakers in society, helping to restore relationships, to restore unity in the homes of others, the families of others, and between people who have conflicts, then we are accomplishing the end-time message of God, which is the love of the third angel and of this Elijah message. This is the still, small voice, and this is powerful. This is very, very powerful and cannot be underestimated. Notice that it's a grassroots kind of thing. It's, it cannot be administered from the top. Okay, we're all going to have this Elijah message program now, you know, a five-day plan to stop uh, disputes in the home or whatever. <laughs> and no, it, this has all got to be grassroots. It's going to start, and that's why I love uh, GYC, because it's a grassroots movement, see? It's got to start with the people, and it's one-on-one. It's not in, in a megachurch context. We get 20,000 people here together, and now we know we have power. See, we've got this big building, we've got lots of noise, and we've got incredible uh, everything else. No, this is one-on-one. And we're seeing now the power of one-on-one. Have you ever gone to YouTube, and you see all the different hits? You know how people found out that that was even there? They told another individual. See? The power of one-on-one is going very fast. Question. So this reconciliation is so Okay, well, obviously, humans always have the power of choice. And so we're there to facilitate and to offer that, to incorporate it in our lives. But if somebody's not willing, then we move on and we find other people who are willing. As Jesus said, if you go into a town where they don't accept you, move on. Don't, don't just um, waste time there. Yeah. Okay. Now, service. I love this quotation by Mother Teresa. I know she had some issues in her own life and a lot of sadness, but Jesus comes to meet us, to welcome him. Let us go to meet him. He comes to us in the hungry, the naked, the lonely, the alcoholic, the drug addict, the prostitute, the street beggars. He may come to you or me in a father who is alone, in a mother, in a brother, or in a sister. If we reject them, if we do not go out to meet them, we reject Jesus himself. Isn't that powerful? So she recognizes what Jesus says in Matthew uh, 25. Insofar as you have done it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. So we are treating other people as we would want to treat Jesus if he were here among us. And it's fascinating. I have a whole sermon on that. Would we want to be like Peter, who denied him? Like James and John? Like the others? Would we want to be like Judas, who betrayed him? 
or like Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who lovingly buried him. Who would we have been in that story? See? You go to the story of the, the last hours of Jesus' life and you look at all the different people and the way they treated him and you, you try to find out who am I really in this story? That's an interesting question. Yeah. And then, as you look around in your life, view that in terms of the way you respond to other people and be honest with yourself. That'll be quite revealing. It's time to go home, folks. It's time to go home. Enough is enough. Yep. It was not the will of God, Ellen White said, that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. God did not design that his people, Israel, should wander 40 years in the wilderness. For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. Same sins. Unbelief, murmuring, rebellion. You remember what you have to have to have the seal of God. You've got to have belief, trust, and be his servant. This is exactly the opposite, right? Exactly. Unbelief, murmuring, rebellion, which means you're not going to be his servant and follow him. That's what has kept us out. So it's quite simple what we need. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, the consecration, the strife and consecration, now we know, is lack of love, right? And the strife among the Lord's, not unity, like in John 17, among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. And that was 1883. So what she's doing is she's saying that God's people came up, they had the opportunity to come up to the entrance to the heavenly Canaan and they stopped short and they turned around and turned back like the ancient Israelites at Kadesh Barnea. That's what Ellen White said. And I believe in looking at history in studying the word, I believe that every generation or so we have the opportunity it doesn't just, you, don't, you can't just turn around immediately. Right? You have to go, go back and then you get an op- another opportunity maybe a few decades later, maybe a generation or two or three. I don't know. There's another opportunity for the people to come back up. But we have to overcome the mistakes of the past. Those choices that were made, we need to recognize those choices, and now we do, and we need to do the opposite of what they did. And we need to follow God wholeheartedly all the way. And I love this. Ellen White says in early writings, just before she recounts her first vision that she had when she was, what, 17 years old, right? 17. How many people here are 17 or younger? Okay, all right. She was pretty young. Yeah, all right. I have tried to bring back a good report, she says, and a few grapes from the heavenly Canaan. She's talking about the report of her vision, where she is coming back to tell people what's up there waiting for them. And she's like Caleb and Joshua, the scouts, who go into the land of Canaan to come back and tell what they've seen. I've tried to bring back a good report and a few grapes from the heavenly Canaan for which many would stone me as the congregation bad stone Caleb and Joshua for their report. And they're still do it, trying to do it, right? I mean, there's even a, a website up that has a picture of Ellen White and it says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, and that's just ripping apart Ellen White. Still trying to stone her. But I declare to you, my brethren and sisters in the Lord, it is a goodly land and we are well able to go up and possess it. What she's doing, she's quoting Caleb. That's what Caleb said there in Numbers chapter 13. Everyone was starting to get upset when they were hearing the ten spies. And Caleb said, hush. Hebrew is hush, which basically means be quiet, hush. (laughs) We could use stronger terms for it. Um, But then he said, we 
are well able to go up and possess it. It's a goodly land. We. What does he mean by we? Are able. What does he mean able? Who's we? For Caleb, we is different than for the other um, scouts. We is different for Caleb. Because we, for Caleb, includes God. And if he's for us, nobody can be against us. The other scouts were trying to do it on their own. That's the difference. All right? And this Caleb, who started out his life as a slave, and his name meant dog. Did you know that? Caleb? Hebrew Caleb. Caleb. His name meant dog. Uh, this Caleb went on to the land of Canaan. And when he got there, he volunteered to take Hebron, the, um, the place where the giants were. And he chose that specifically because the people had said, you can't go in because of the giants. He said, I'm going to take the giants. And he, he hounded them out of town. Caleb, whose name means dog, with dogged determination, he hounded them out of town. Praise the Lord for that. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.